You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning. Good morning, friends. It is so good to be together. It is so good to see so many of you here in person, to see so many of you with us online. Thank you, those of you that are here in person, for sitting in the front half of the sanctuary. I was just noticing that. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of you sitting in front. All right, cool. Folks, it is so good to be together. My name is Arif Mamdani. I am one of your ministers here Yeah, it is so good to be together. I'm one of your ministers here at First Universalist. It is a joy to be leading worship with you all this morning. And this morning, we have a very special guest preacher with us. The Reverend Meg Riley is here. I want to tell you you just a little bit about, um, just a little bit about Meg. So, um... If you don't know Meg, uh, the Reverend Meg Riley was installed as co-moderator and chief governance officer at uh, General Assembly in 2020, um, which means that uh, Meg occupies the the highest volunteer position that one can in our association. Meg is a lifelong Unitarian Universalist. Uh, She grew up in congregations in um, Charleston, in uh, West Virginia, and Akron, Ohio. Um, Since 1983, she's served UU congregations, organizations, and enterprises in many capacities, served on the UUA staff in a variety of roles for 21 years, and as some of you might know, in particular, Meg served uh, from 1985 to 89 as the Director of Religious Education here at First Universalist, which means, yes that she was um, instrumental in the faith formation of many of the young people in this congregation, uh, and as some of you know, that includes my wife. Um, Always deeply collaborative, uh, Meg has worked to create new opportunities for advancing strong leadership, especially the leadership of younger people, people of color, LGBT folks, wherever she has served. As one former intern said, when Meg sees someone on fire about something, She throws gasoline, not water, on their fire. Uh, I have been the recipient of this. Uh, uh, I was one of those people that Meg um, uh, encouraged into ministry many, many years back, so I have her to thank for being here. Um, Meg lives in Minneapolis, uh, is married to Dr. Nancy Hammond, who recently retired after 37 years as a clinical psychologist. Meg was the uh, senior minister of the Church of the Larger Fellowship for 10 years, has been a religious professional for 37 years, formally retired from ministry in 2020, which I think was right after Meg and I and Reverend Terry Bernard were part of a three-person interim ministry team at the UU Church of Minnetonka. Meg, we are so glad that you're with us this morning. Friends, For over 150 years, First Universalist has been a community proclaiming 
the power of love and hope. Creating community where we invite each other into the rhythm and the practice of giving, receiving, and growing together. We practice the universalist spirit of love and hope by listening to where love is calling us next, by welcoming, affirming, and protecting the light in each human heart, by acting with humility, courage, and compassion for justice, and we do all of this with a deep commitment to ending oppression in all forms and building the beloved community of liberation, joy, and belonging for us all. This is what we're about, folks, caring for each other, right? Always adjusting to align ourselves with our values. This is the life that we invite you into when you journey with us, and there are lots of ways to get connected. I also want to let you know that we have another concert coming up in a couple of weeks. On April 24th, our very own Ellis Delaney will be with us uh, playing a concert here at 3 p.m. Tickets are on sale right now. You can go to firstuniversalistchurch.org tickets, or you can get the link to purchase tickets in the Liberal. This morning, I want to wish a very special Ramadan Kareem to our Muslim and UU Muslim siblings here in the congregation and around the world. We hope that this time of fasting and prayer deepens your spirit and brings you closer to God. And so friends, let's prepare ourselves for this time of care and connection. Let's settle in, settle our bodies, and take three breaths together. I invite you to take a deep breath in and let it out slowly. Take another deep breath in and let it out slowly. And one last deep breath in together and slowly letting it out. And as we enter into this time of worship, we remember that we are on land that is not our own. That people and land and beings are not possessions to own that the earth and its people, past, present, and future, carry stories and hold histories of hope and resilience, of trauma and pain, and we commit ourselves to learning and holding it all, trusting in the power of love as we do what is ours to do to repair the web we all live within. Please join me in the words for lighting our chalice. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Good, good, good morning, good, good, good morning, good, good, good morning, gonna be a great day. Good, good, good morning, good Good, good morning, good, good, good morning, gonna be a great day. Again! Good, good, good morning, good, good, good morning, good, good, good morning, gonna be a great day. One more time, good, good, good morning, good, good, good morning, good, good. Good morning, gonna be a great day. 
Good morning. It's so great to be back in this church again with you folks today. My name is Dave Bach, and I'm here and very pleased to see all these faces out here, even with your mask on, who I recognize, I see you, but so many people I don't recognize. I love that because that means this church is growing. We're growing in numbers, but we're also growing in quality. We're getting great ideas into this church, and we're growing and moving ahead in the challenges that are in front of us. Well, I'm here as a member of the pledge team, but also a very long-term member of this church. And I want to share a little bit about myself, just to give you an idea why I'm still here after all these years. Well, my wife was raised in the Unitarian Universalist Church, which is a bit of oddity at the time we joined, but not anymore, thanks to people like us. <laughs> Both of us are musicians, and shortly after we moved here, Jim Riley, who was the pianist and, and choir director uh, at the time, asked her to accompany the choir at the Gerard Avenue location. Now, how many people in here remember when we were at the Gerard Avenue location? Let me see your hands. Folks online, raise your hand too, please. Yes, great. Well, there are a few of us around yet. That's great. <laughs> Well, at that point, we joined this faith community and we found it a perfect place for us uh, as a couple that uh, were pursuing liberal religious views of the world, but also a great place for us to raise our two daughters, Avril and Eileen. And some of you may know, know them from their time here. So Sunday worship, uh, the youth programs, coming of age, and Camp Unistar were an important part of our spiritual development. Now, how many of you have been to Camp Unistar? Look at those hands. Yes, all right, Camp Unistar. So all those things pulled together provided us a wonderful experience, but also helped our girls develop into the fine young people they are today. So why are we still here? The, the girls are young women now, and they're living in other communities and actually in other parts of, of the world. So why are we still here? Well, we're here because we are, and we want the First Universalist Church to be here for you, your children, your neighbor's children, your grandchildren. We want this place to be here in the future. This church is critical with all the division and challenges in the world. First Universalist has always provided a community where we can say together that love is the spirit of this church. But we can also say that love is the only thing that's going to cure this world right now. Wherever we have been on 9-11, when George Floyd was murdered, when COVID hit, when they were bombarding the Capitol, if it wasn't for this church to be able to gather here, even if it was online, to take time to reflect and put everything in perspective, this place was so important during those times of transition. We need First Universalist Church, and we need to support it so that generations to come will have a place they can call community and a place they can call their spiritual home. So I want you to reflect in your lives why you're here and come up with a good reason why this is so important to you that you need to make sure it's here for other generations, for other people's children, for your children. And then give generously as we enter into our, in the last stages of our pledge period for this year. 
So thank you very much. Thank you for being here. It's a great faith community to come to every Sunday. And please keep in mind, help support this place for future generations. Thank you very much. see you. You know, we're going to have a story, and there aren't a lot of kids here today because it's spring break, but the fact of the matter is stories are really important to everybody. We are shaped by stories, and one of the really important kinds of stories that every people tell are creation stories. Where did we come from? Who are we? They're foundational to understanding life. For many of us, the foundational creation story involves God and a man and a woman and a snake and an apple in a garden, and it involves shame and blame and sending away. But if you look at indigenous creation stories from around the world, they're really different. Most of them involve community struggling together to create. And yeah, there are mistakes, but people don't get kicked out for making mistakes. They're welcomed in, and the mistakes are celebrated as part of the learning. So this morning, we're going to watch a creation story. This is Reverend Dr. Lisa Hike telling the story, Grandmother Spider Weaves the World. yesterday, somewhere far, far away, and yet right here, there is a cave full of darkness and firelight on the bank of a stream. In the cave lives an old, old woman, Grandmother Spider. She is weaving the most beautiful shawl there ever was. She has been doing this for a very long time, for so long she can't remember when she started, maybe even before the beginning. Her ancient, gnarled hands are full of threads of all colors and textures, shimmering blues and greens, fiery oranges and reds, warm, glimmering golds and cool, shady grays. She is weaving them into patterns so intricate and complex they take eons to complete. She's getting near the edges of the shawl where she is attaching porcupine quills to finish it. She has to flatten each quill with her teeth and she's been doing this so long that her teeth she works on, weaving and flattening 
is a fire, and over that fire hangs a cauldron. In the cauldron is a stew containing all the herbs and seeds that grow in the world. Every so often the old woman has to stir the stew, otherwise it will burn and who knows what troubles might ensue. So she gets up from her place at her loom and slowly, painfully makes her way to the back of the cave. Now Coyote has been sitting at the entrance to that cave, dying of curiosity. What is the old woman doing in there? What are those glimmers of color he catches sight of when he peeks inside? What are those good smells? The moment the old woman gets up and turns her back, he sneaks in and rushes over to the weaving. He sniffs at it and paws at it and sniffs at it and paws at it. He finds the end of a thread and takes it in his mouth and pulls on it and pulls on it and pulls on it some more. And you know how it is with weaving. If you pull out one thread, the whole thing comes unraveled. Well, Coyote is having great fun growling and shaking the mass of unraveled threads, spreading them from one side of the cave to the other. But then he hears Grandmother Spider coming back. Uh-oh, he's going to be in big trouble, so he slinks back out as quick as he can. When Grandmother Spider returns, instead of her beautiful creation, she finds nothing but a chaotic mess of destruction. She sits back down in her chair with a handful of thread and stares for a while at nothing. And then she realizes she's been at this work since before the beginning and she is tired and she is lonely. So she calls on her siblings and her children and all of her other relatives and they call on their siblings and their children and all of their other relatives. They all crowd into the cave. Hummingbird is there and bear and bat and ant and earthworm and mouse and hawk and deer and opossum. Many of the swimming ones too in the stream at the mouth of the cave and the rooted ones are standing just outside. Even human, the youngest of all, is there. Mm, and Coyote is coming too, all humble and ashamed for now. The relatives hold counsel for many days. They think about all the colors and textures of the threads. They spend quiet time letting visions come. Pretty soon Coyote gets bored and runs off to find something more interesting to do, but the other relatives begin to speak to each other, and as each one speaks, the others listen. Even the smallest and the youngest speak and listen, and they begin to understand that while Grandmother Spider has the job of weaving the shawl and stirring the pot, and the others each have their own job, they can keep Grandmother Spider company. 
they can take turns telling her their stories and singing her their songs, sharing their longings and their visions. And so they do. And after a time, into Grandmother Spider's mind comes a new design, a design even more beautiful than the last. And once again, she takes up the threads and begins weaving the most beautiful shawl that ever was. And that is the end of that story. Or is it just the beginning? So I want to invite you into a time of meditation, a time of prayer, a time of centering. So you can put down what you're holding, literally or metaphorically. Just let it go. It'll be there. You can let your gaze be soft. Close your eyes if that's comfortable for you. You can listen for the sounds around you. Maybe you notice the sounds of people. Maybe the sounds of traffic outside. can let these noises bring you into this present moment, feeling the energy of the spirit of life and love that surrounds us, that moves within us, that moves among us, that moves beyond us. You can really feel the energy of creation right now here in the upper Midwest. The earth is thawing. Buds are forming on trees. You can smell all the smells of spring as the energy of life returns to frozen ground. This is truly a time for going into the earth, for allowing our shells to crack open just a little more as our hopes and dreams of who we might be together sprout up, growing more beautiful and alive as we water them, as the sun of our hearts shines on them. This is how we rise. All that we long for is already here. That's the essential message of so many spiritual traditions. The farthest distance we need travel in search of what we long for is the distance from our heads to our hearts, from our intellect to our bodies. Feel that movement, feel that energy. That too is the energy of creation. 
So as we pray this morning, may our prayers be prayers that we might cultivate the ability to grow what is already here. Finding here the love, the care, the compassion, the willingness to share our wealth in all its forms that everyone in our circle can flourish, even as we draw the circle wider. As our prayers circle out this morning, I invite you to hold in care and name aloud, speak silently in your heart or share in the chat all those who you would lift up in worship this morning. We hold so much here in our sanctuary, here in our wider community this morning. Our prayers circle out holding all those who are celebrating today. Our prayers circle out holding all those who are suffering today. Our prayers circle out holding all those just trying to make it through another day. This too is how we rise. And so we pray that the grip of addiction be loosened, that the weight of oppression be lightened, that joy break through, that truth be told, and that love make every suffering bearable for us all. Amen. reading this morning, The Butterfly Effect, by the Reverend Teresa Soto. I wish the knowledge were easier to come by, that individualism is just a scam, that you are always the butterfly wings. You are always a flap of the storm. Edward Lawrence a weather scientist from MIT, is sometimes misquoted on this as the premise that the butterfly wing can cause a hurricane in a different part of the world. Shorthand, that isn't all that close to a representation of the math-turned-weather-scientist's work. He proposed that should we make even a tiny alteration to nature, we will never know what would have happened if we had not disturbed it 
since subsequent changes are too complex and entangled to restore a previous state. Which is to say that you have an immeasurable effect on the system. It will change and you will shape its DNA. You must not believe that the lying lie that you do not matter, that whatever change you can organize is so insufficient as to not be worth your time, your energy, your life force. You must be willing to dream a dream that carries forward your community. This is how we rise. This day is polluted with a mistrust of truth. Fertile and warm medium for unchecked cruelty and power. You must choose to scream the truth. Scream the truth until every leaf and stone bears unrepentant witness to what happens when you try to cage and smash, to pin and frame a butterfly and their thousands and thousands of fabulous flamboyant friends. This is how we rise. This congregation is so foundational to me. I always feel incredibly grateful to be back here and I was remembering just this morning that this is the first place I ever preached a sermon. Uh, John Cummins was the minister, I was the religious educator, and he asked me to preach. And as the day came closer, I realized he had made a huge mistake. So I began to be afraid that I would either vomit into the pulpit or somehow physically spoil myself. And so I went to his office and I said, John, there's, there's been a huge mistake. I, I can't do it. I said I'd do it, but I can't do it. And he looked at me with kindness and compassion and he said, you're really scared, aren't you? And I just felt it come off me. I said, yeah. And he said, we're going to have to get you up there a lot until you're not so scared. <laughs> at which point I started backing out of the room and said, just once, just once. This is how we rise. Other people see in us what we can't see in ourselves. It's always wonderful to be with you. So if what I read on the internet is true, I'm not the only person here online or in this room who began baking in earnest during the past few years. Anybody? Anybody pandemic bakers? Bread and biscuits and all kinds of things I'd never thought of making before began to beckon to me in those long months of staying home. Why not try? And so I've spent the past several years experimenting, having some great successes and some truly spectacular failures as I learn about different kinds of flour and pans and different oven temperatures and how humidity can take down even a tried and true recipe. I've gotten more confident, but I still do have occasional disasters. It occurs to me that just as I've experimented and learned about baking, about how different factors affect the rise of the bake, if we are to rise as individuals, as families, as communities, as congregations, as nations, as neighborhoods, we too need to find tools to help us to allow for failure as we practice, to experiment and stay humble as we learn. 
The author, James Clear, who wrote a book called Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Break Bad Habits and Build Good Ones, said, okay, well, wait. Before I tell you what he said, I need to provide a little context. I haven't actually read his book. In fact, in general, I stay away from books I consider business self-help books or how to be a better capitalist, uh, usually international bestsellers written by cisgender white men. My partner, Nancy, who retired, as Arif mentioned, after years as a clinical psychologist, said that it looks like they always take some well-known psychological principle, present it as their radical revelation, and make a fortune on it. I admit that when she told me that, I immediately asked her if there were any more psychological principles that we might write about and cash in on. <laughs> but she'd have none of that. Be that as it may, the two of us listened to James Clear interviewed recently on a long road trip on a two-part Brene Brown podcast, because we like Brene Brown podcasts. And she, like me, was stopped by a particular sentence. So now I'll tell you that sentence. James Clear said, you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. That's a good sentence, isn't it? You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. As UUA co-moderator, I took particular note of this. Unitarian Universalists, individually and collectively, are great at stating goals, big goals, lofty goals. Our seven principles affirm and promote, just for instance, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. But if we want to do more than scream those words into the wind, we need systems to actually push those values forward in the world. You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Actually, the internet taught me that James Clear adapted his words from a Greek lyrical poet, Archilochus, who apparently was most famous for writing a genre I had never heard of but I'm now intrigued by, insult poetry. Archilochus died in 645 BC, so he can't sue James Clear for plagiarism. He actually wrote, we don't rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. We don't rise to the level of our goals or our expectations, we fall to the level of our training and our systems. Whether we're talking about baking better bread, creating exercise habits, or developing communities of trust and belonging in our congregations, we need to create actual systems and train ourselves to use them until culture changes and the new systems become second nature, until what is new and unfamiliar becomes habitual. It takes time and intention and practice. If that sounds big and overwhelming, Clear says we need to start with tiny, doable steps. That's why the book is called Atomic Habits, teeny, teeny, tiny steps. But the first step to achieving any goal, he says, is to become very clear about who we want to be, not what we want to do, but who we want to be, what kind of person, what kind of community, what kind of family we want to be. 
After we have really clarified who we want to be, then we think of small steps that, in his language, cast votes for that vision of who we want to become, actions which slowly and surely align us with our desired identity. So whether in this congregation or the UUA or in your home, that question of who you are, of who we are, of who we want to be is the central question. According to the landing page of First Universalist Church websites, we are a diverse and inclusive community. The national UUA words it differently, but we're also working to become a faith where people who are not cisgender and white and middle class and able-bodied can thrive. So if that's who we want to be, if that's who we want to identify ourselves as being, how do we create habits and systems to take us from, more, from hopeful expectation to daily lived reality? It begins with work to deepen our clarification of who we want to be with asking questions like, why do we want to be a diverse and inclusive community? How is that central to our faith? What does it mean for our theology? I have served on committees at the UUA for more than 30 years now with words like diverse and inclusive in their names. And while progress has been made at the UUA level and here in this congregation, a great deal of pain has also been suffered by the people at the margins of privilege. I believe some of that has come in part from lack of clarity or commitment about who we really want to be. So let me make it clear. In order to be diverse and inclusive, we are swimming upstream against currents of white supremacy, ableism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, ageism, in waters defined by capitalism's foundational definitions of who matters and who doesn't. This is not work for the faint of heart or the ambivalent. It's not superficial work. If we are to succeed at all, it has to be because we know as our deepest truth that inclusive diversity is who we are called to be, who we are, who we have to be. Engraved solidly in my mind is a conversation I had several years ago with a colleague who is black and transgender about what community means. I said to my colleague, many privileged people go to UU congregations to find comfort among like-minded people. And we think of that as community, whereas marginalized people think of community. And then I paused, because I realized I didn't know how to finish that sentence. And my colleague finished it for me. As survival, they said. For me, as a black trans person, community is my only hope for survival. Please consider with me the gap between those expressed desires and needs. Two radically different ways of understanding what it means to create community, being comfortable and staying alive. If I've come to universe, Unitarian Universalism in order to be comfortable, it's not gonna work if I believe that I am entitled to my comfort and I want to be inclusive. Because as I begin to understand that my comfort has created profound discomfort for others, I'm going to have to be uncomfortable at least some of the time as I open my heart and mind to the other people in my community. I need to listen and prioritize the needs of those whose survival is at risk. What, what I think is true? 
might in fact be limited by my biases and privileges? What? I'm not entitled to say whatever I think? What? And so as we begin to really think about who we want to be, we need to ask ourselves, are we ready to find faithful community in discomfort rather than comfort? And how do we create joy and celebration and new kinds of comfort to do the work together? Those of us who have privileged identities have hard work to do because it's makeup work for a lot of us, having lived long lifetimes in relative comfort. My 25-year-old child never spent a moment on the gender binary. Theirs has been a life of integrity and authenticity, joy, and pain and struggle. They've always known who they are. When I was five, I said, because this is the question you asked at the time, do you ever think you're in the wrong body? And I said, no, this is my body. I'm in the wrong world. This is someone who knew who they were. Along the way, as they tried to figure out how to navigate that, there was a journey with pronouns and understanding and language. And as a parent, I always followed their lead. At one stage in high school, I was instructed never to correct anyone's gender assumptions. So whatever gender someone presumed they were, I, I went along with it. So I was at a party, I was talking to a man I didn't know about Jai's school, and another man who we both knew came along, and this new guy said, oh, we're just talking about her son's school. And my friend said, she doesn't have a son, trying to help. So on the way home, I described the scene to Jai, and I said, I felt very uncomfortable. Jai looked at me for a while, silently, and then said, you felt uncomfortable. How long did you feel uncomfortable? That has since been a guiding principle for me. When I feel uncomfortable, I ask myself, how long have I felt uncomfortable? How does my discomfort compare to others' experiences in the room? Could my discomfort potentially lead to violence or verbal abuse? These questions have trained me. They're part of my training. I'm much quieter than I used to be when I'm uncomfortable. That's one of my new habits and practices. Another one was suggested to me several years ago by one of the co-founders of Black Lives UU, one of the best organizers in the entire country, in my opinion, a woman named Leslie Mack. She said that when she finds herself getting defensive, and just because I'm more quiet than I used to be doesn't mean that what's going on in my head doesn't still get really defensive. And when people tell me I've made a mistake or maybe I've hurt them, even if outwardly I've learned to listen and thank them, inwardly I may be venting about my intentions or I may be trying to defend myself. Leslie Mack said she uses her defensiveness as a kind of a wake-up bell. When she gets into defensiveness, she says, oh, here's a moment for learning. Now, I don't always get there easily, but when I look at who I want to be, and I listen to the rant, and I listen to the defense, I think, is this who I want to be, or do I want to be somebody who's learning? I want to be somebody who's learning, so I align myself with who I want to be, and then I practice. 
What if I turned the channel on my grumbling and resistance and decided to use this opportunity to learn? So I'm developing new opportunity, new practices like this because I need them. We need them in our congregations because the people who come to our communities with survival needs have spent entire lifetimes navigating and receiving training, day by day, moment by moment, learning how to survive in a world where survival is not to be taken for granted and almost never expecting to be comfortable. We need to create systems which allow people with marginalized identities, molecule by molecule, to have reason to trust that the community would be there solidly. This is big work, work that will not be completed in our lifetime, work that in fact will never be completed, will need to be recreated each day, each moment, each interaction, in community, like the video that we saw. And yet there is such joy and satisfaction being immersed in that task, seeing glimmers of who this faith proclaims we could be, who our faith could make us, who we might become if we allowed ourselves to truly be shaped and shaken by love's power. Even as I surrender to the inevitability of discomfort and making mistakes and try again, so we have to ask together what systems will move us, will move those of us who do not yet know how to be welcoming, how to be inclusive towards competence. What skills do we need? What formal and informal systems and training? What bad habits do we need to break as we lean into creating who we want to be? It starts with that deepest possible affirmation of who we could be. It's big work. To do it, we need spiritual practices of gratitude and humility and compassion, practices undervalued in this world, but absolutely necessary if we're to be who we say we want to be. We need to gather people close to help us and challenge us and love us through our mistakes and struggle, struggle with our questions with us. And we need to know that change, even when we want it, will bring grief and anger and fear along the way. And we need rituals and practices to hold it all and still stay focused on who we want to be. This is not an easy faith, friends. It never has been and it never will be. It is impossible to do this work alone, and that is precisely why I've given my life here, because I need a faith center with music and ritual and deep relationships for this countercultural journey towards my own humanity.